Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. So this month, December 2018, we're going to do a best of series. And so this week's show was a really interesting show we did this past summer with Mike Kiley and Carmen DiCenzo of two organizations, Dakin Humane Society and the MSPCA in Massachusetts. Uh, and they talked a lot about the changes in sheltering with regards to cats. I found it very interesting. And so I thought we would replay this episode and uh, share it with you. So I hope you enjoy the show and learn locks from Mike and Carmen. Today, we're speaking with Carmen DiCenzo and Mike Kiley. Carmen has had a long and distinguished career in animal welfare and human services and has been recognized as a leader and innovator. In August of 2016, he was named executive director at Dakin Humane Society, where he oversees all aspects of the organization's work at its two locations in Leverett and Springfield, Mass. Dakin has more than 50 employees and nearly 800 volunteers who shelter, treat, and foster more than 20,000 animals annually. Mike Kiley is the Director of Adoption Centers and Programs at the MSPCA. Mike oversees four adoption centers, which include adoption centers and spay-neuter clinics in Methuen, Boston, and Cape Cod. The Methuen campus includes an equine and farm animal adoption center. In addition to the small animal adoption center, Mike also oversees the MSPCA's community outreach programs. Each year, the MSPCA helps over 20,000 animals through its various programs. Carmen and Mike, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> so for folks that uh, maybe haven't been to some of the New England Fed conferences and the HSUS Expo conferences, the two of you have been on the road for the last couple of years and have been doing a show. So I'm thrilled to have you with me today together. So it's great. You both have been working in the field for, I hate to say, a long, long time, but as long as I have. And so I thought we would first start off uh, with Mike, maybe first talking about your experiences with regards to community cats in New England, um, what have the trends been? What are you seeing around the country? Maybe you could comment on that first, and then we would swing over to Carmen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you think we're going back to when I first started in animal welfare in 1994, the, the trend was pretty one note, where it was just an overwhelming sea of cats being surrendered to us from various situations of owner surrender, stray, abandon, law enforcement seizures. Um, feral cats being trapped. And I think our outlook on cats and community cats back then was uh, was really just essentially dealing with an unwinnable situation in which we were dealing with a, um, a crush of animals coming through in that much of what we were providing wasn't necessarily a strategic approach to dealing with cats, but more so dealing with an overpopulation problem in a way that we could best at that time, which was take as many as we could, adopt out as many as we might be able to find homes for, and then make decisions for euthanasia on the rest. And I think um, over time, I think that has been 
probably the number one reason why our staff have left the organization over time and volunteers because of the emotional stress of euthanasia, as well as the physical toll of dealing with so many cats. So I think what's been exciting in the last five years on my end is that we have formulated a strategy both for adoption as well as for targeted spay-neuter and dealing with different populations of cats in different ways. And I think we're now at the point where, largely in New England, we are not dealing with an overpopulation of cats any longer. And that is most definitely something I would not have imagined when I first started in this, this field. What about you, Carmen? Yeah, you know, I'd probably say um, pretty similar to what Mike has experienced that, you know, throughout the years. I mean, I remember coming into this field and the idea of trap neuter release was actually extremely controversial. I remember kind of being in the room when discussions were being had of how this, you know, we shouldn't be doing this and euthanasia is a better option. And obviously we've, over the years that's evolved and changed. And not only did we see TNR for, you know, feral free roaming cats, but return to field and other options for cats that uh, are social, but you know, like maybe an outdoor life is just okay for them. So it's interesting to see those changes. And I think some of the bigger changes, as Mike said, with a lower population of cats in our shelters, we are actually able to be more creative with the programs we have. And, you know, regularly for the past three years here at Dakin, we are able to take cats uh, that are, you know, under 12 weeks of age that are acting completely unsocialized, put them on our adoption floor and through our spirit kitten program, have them in homes and have actually great success in homes, which I probably never would have seen coming that we would take, you know, literally a cat that was born outdoors, had never seen a human and be able to put them in a home and have a public that's embracing that and very happy to adopt those cats. One of the things that I find when I'm talking with folks from all around the country is I get this feeling people go, well, in New England, you maybe have it all set, but we'll, we won't ever be able to get there. What would you say to that, that kind of comment, Carmen? Uh, I would say we said the same thing. We never thought we would get there. And uh, certainly, I, mean, I think we saw it coming sooner with dogs. But I was actually surprised, especially over the last couple of years, how dramatic the shift was. It, you know, we started to see fewer and fewer. I think what we first started to see was uh, we were seeing fewer litters of kittens that were born in a home. So, you know, essentially people that had a cat at their house that was uh, either intentionally or unintentionally became pregnant. You know, those litters used to come to our shelters and slow, little by little, those weren't the cats or kittens we were seeing. We were seeing kittens born outdoors as really the biggest part of our population. And we think a lot of that has to do with people are able to find, as our shelters have fewer cats and kittens in them, it's easier for someone that has a litter of kittens to place them on their own without the use of a shelter, which ultimately was our goal. You know, I do remember when I started in shelters, we always said to people that were surrendering, are there other options? Have you tried to place animals on their own? And I've kind of seen this kind of shift in the field now that people are doing that there's a little bit of fear of like oh no people are doing this thing on their own that we wanted them to do it's really interesting and, and so again to other parts of the country uh, it probably is there and start to look at the trends of of the numbers and i think you'll notice that um you'll probably start to see that that decline as well and what do you think mike about that and maybe also comment on like what are the magic components that really impacted Massachusetts with the substantial drop in, in population coming into the shelters. Yeah. And I mean, I think I, I completely agree with Carmen. And I think one of the things that is challenging for people who work directly in animal shelters with cats is that um, if all of your cages are full, you, you feel like nothing is changing. And so it's very easy, I think, for us to slip into this tendency to say, 
it's not going to happen in our shelter because we are still dealing with this large number of cats. And I think one of the things that's been a major change in animal welfare is actually looking at statistics to determine whether anything is changing and also to look at statistics within our community so that we can formulate plans and how we might be able to make those things shift. So I think for us, you know, the the big change that happened, um, you know, the kind of formula that works for us is that we first needed to deal with our in-house population issues first. So we had a lot, a lot of cats coming in and in Massachusetts, we were uh, we were experiencing larger numbers of intake when other organizations started to see a decrease, and that was largely due to our admission style of being open admission. And so we didn't see a change until we started to sort of force a change in our communities. And that started with doing fee-waived adoption events during the busiest times of our years when we were feeling overwhelmed and feeling um, feeling like we were under the weight of cats. And just being able to get a moment in the middle of August to be able to breathe and to think clearly and strategize when we had been going for such a long period of time from June to December with just being overwhelmed with care, having some of the animals get adopted in large groups gave us a moment to feel a little bit more stable. And then we were able to launch uh, plans from there once our adoption program started working and started looking at our statistics to see where were the cats coming from and what might we be able to do to decrease the number of cats coming into our adoption centers in the first place? And that's when we started our targeted spay-neuter in our communities. It was uh, where I was working at the time in Methuen was Lawrence, Lowell, Haverhill, and Methuen. And to be able to offer low-cost spay-neuter programs to the public, uh, we saw an immediate change in the intake numbers. And it just continued from there. And now we're at the state where we're working with um, animals that are more difficult to place and dealing with that challenge. And also, I think, looking forward to um, how I, how might we be able to go to, from, a more, from a reactive phase to a more proactive phase and being able to work with people who own cats in our community from a direct community outreach and to be able to help them in a different way. Carmen, do you have any thoughts there? It's the Mike and Carmen show because I think we do agree so often on things. So <laughs> I, I would definitely second everything that he says as well. But Really, that, I think that is the, the bigger shift is that we are seeing uh, more challenging animals in our adoption centers. Even now, I can tell you in our adoption center, we have a fair number of cats for adoption, but the cats on our direct adoption floor that you know your average person can walk in and see are, are fewer than they were before because our cats are in offices. They're in foster homes. They are in our barn cat program room, which you know isn't necessarily a room that people are going to just walk on in. So definitely a huge shift in that population of, hey, there's just too many cats and anyone should walk in. It can walk in here and, and we can have a cat that will match your style. We're dealing more with cats that have uh, behavior, medical, or, or a combination of those. And we're finding our adoptions are actually becoming a little more specialized. Um, I think one other thing I would just point out with I bet you there's people listening to this that would say, no, there still are pockets of uh, New England that are experiencing overpopulation and that are overwhelmed. And what I would challenge there, though, is it truly overpopulation and being overwhelmed or is it the lack of ability to let go of animals in your care? So if you as an individual shelter in a region that is vastly seeing a decrease in the number of shelter animals, if your individual organization is still seeing an increase, you may want to look at your adoption policies, uh, your intake policies, and, you know, are you, you know, hanging on to animals that, that would be able to be placed um, because of fear of different policies or someone's not going to adopt them the quote-unquote correct way or do, you know, have open adoption. So I would challenge that because I have heard, I have heard that that there are pockets that still have overpopulation and 
I think there we should define that overpopulation is very, very different than not allowing your animals to leave your shelter. Possible pockets of population that I would call them sort of the undocumented cats and that they are out there and it's just that our programs aren't necessarily reaching them. Um, I don't yeah, know if, if you'd have any any thoughts on that, but I think that as we take deeper dives into communities, I wrote down here in my notes, I was sort of thinking about Pets for Life Plus or 2.0, Pets for Life 2.0, because Mike was touching upon some of the topics about sort of the wellness and care for the cats in the community. We've put a ton of resources into spaying and neutering a lot of these cats for either free or very low, which is like $10 at the MSPCA. But then as these cats age, they're going to need other care. So I think it's going to be a bit more as we move forward, you know, not wanting to take these cats in. But there are also pockets of cats that maybe need assistance that just the community outreach is not there. And Mike, you had mentioned looking forward about more community outreach and more engagement Enabled, in enabling people to keep their cats in their homes and, and looking at crafting programs in a different way. I don't know if you would be able to expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are starting, uh, we, we basically launched on May 1st out of our Boston location to do a Pets for Life program out of the zip code of 02121, which is in Dorchester. And so we're in our first month and recognizing some of the things that we anticipated, which is spay and neuter is obviously uh, an important component. And I would suspect that the pockets that people are referring to probably are in areas where poverty is prevalent and that their access to affordable care is probably pretty low. So I think we are seeing pockets, but but largely those pockets are there not because people aren't willing to spay and neuter their animals and not wanting to do that, but really just transportation, affordable spay and neuter and affordable care in general, uh, access to any other types of pets pet supplies and pet food is just challenging for people who are living in poverty that many of us can't really relate to. And I think we are certainly seeing, so what's interesting about Dorchester is that we have started that process. And what we're finding is that exactly what we might've anticipated. We offered spay neuter at a low cost of $10 for people in that community already before we started going door to door. So we are finding that many of the cats um, and, the, uh, and many of the owners that we're talking to, their cats are already spayed and neutered. Uh, their dogs are not because we haven't had uh, an overreaching dog program for that. So uh, we're already finding that some of our programs have already worked from a spay-neuter standpoint. But we are seeing just what you suggested, people dealing with chronic issues with their cats, whether it be flea infestations that are chronic or ear-related uh, issues, ear mites or ear infections. And I think one of the things that we knew we would stumble upon is dental care for cats. I think when you look at dental care, it's probably the least affordable process for anybody um, even, you know, people who are not dealing with poverty, even for myself, it's, if I didn't have our, our discount at our Angel Animal Medical Center, it would be hard for me to afford our dental care for our cats. And it's very prevalent within the feline species. So I think um, when I think back on to what our organization started for, it was for is was to protect animals and to help people. And I think it's one of those things where there is some inherent suffering that may be happening in our community from animals that are suffering from dental disease and has a potential solution, but doesn't yet have a pathway for people to get that affordably. I agree we're going to be dealing with a lot of those types of uh, those issues, and I'm excited to try to problem solve around that because I do think um, I would hate to see people having to give their animals up that they care about and have kept in their households for 12 to 13 years and then have to separate from them because they can't afford something like a dental surgery. Carmen, I think you might have been, when you were in Providence, might have been one of the first organizations to bring Pets for Life 
up to, to New England. So maybe for folks that might not be specifically familiar with the program, what does it really entail? Sure. Yeah, we were part of the first mentorship group back in 2012 when the HSUS opened up that program for mentors. There were 10 cities throughout the country chosen, and Providence was one of them when I was working there. So I think really the um, the takeaways from that program and really the essence of it, it was pretty eye-opening for me with you know being in Providence, which is you know very small. I mean, Rhode Island uh, in general is pretty small. You know, I did my training for Pets for Life in Philadelphia, which, you know, one of the zip codes in Philadelphia is the size of all of Providence. So we were focusing on um, some zip codes that we identified areas of need. And I think what, what was really eye-opening to me was how right in our backyard there were pockets, neighborhoods that really did not know what we did for services. You know, we had this perception that everyone in Providence knew about us and, and knew what we did. And, you know, as we got into the community, knocking on doors, making relationships, we really started to realize, like, wow, people don't really know what we're here for. And I think one of the things that, that hit me, you know, an example I can give is I remember being with one of the um, outreach volunteers. We were at a home, you know, working with a family and in the hallway was a cat and her kittens. And so we asked, like, oh, you know, is this your cat? Is it someone else in the building? And it it had it wasn't theirs. And basically everyone in the building kind of was chipping in and, and feeding the cat and taking care of them and offered to them that, you know, if, if you're unable to care for these cats or, you know, we can actually help through the shelter. And they had no idea that was a service offered that they could actually take, you know, the mom and kittens to the shelter to be placed. And I guess that, you know, that's a scenario that happened over and over is that, you know, there are communities just placing animals on their own completely without our assistance. So what, you know, being in those um, neighborhoods and being in areas we hadn't been, it did give us an opportunity to kind of help enhance the lives of the animals and the people in that community because we are able to provide, you know, access to veterinary care. Again, it's kind of really basic wellness vaccines, uh, you know, relief from fleas and other kind of parasites. But it was it was interesting. I guess it was just really eye opening. I think we have this assumption that, oh, everyone knows about the shelter and we help all these animals. And we're really only touching a very, very small percentage of the animals. And I, that, I think, was the most eye-opening. I think and it's it's very true. I think it's important for uh, small and large organizations, any or organization out there, to, to really get involved in their local community, whether it's a city like Providence or, you know, a small suburban town. I think being able to be out there and in the community is really important. And I think that the vaccination clinics are a great way to do that because it's sort of like providing a little bit of a carrot to get people to come out, you know, to do vaccines and, and microchipping ideally. And so I, th I think that that is very helpful. And I believe that's sort of like the first step with Pets for Life as a way to sort of get into the communities. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you both a sort of a trick question. How about that? Mm -hmm. For the Mike Great. and Carmen show. All right. Got your journalism. <laughs> <laughs> so you each have $100. You can spend that $100 on either, or you can divide it up in however you would like. Low-cost spay-neuter for cats, trap-neuter return, or an adoption program. How would you divide up that $100 for those three programs? And if I forgot something, you can add another category. Uh, beer? Can beer be a category? <laughs> <laughs> oh, then the 100 is gone already. <laughs> I was waiting for that one to enter into the conversation. 
you know, I don't know that I separate low cost Spay Nader and TNR a hundred percent of the time. I, I, I think when our, the dollars that we have are really about treating the whole cat. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that I always am interested to hear people's perspective on is about when we only maybe do one of these programs in each location, what ends up being the most effective if we did TNR and not low cost spay for the public, or if we only did low cost spay for the public and TNR uh, and not do TNR, you know, are we able to have the greatest effect on our community? You know, one might argue that low cost spay for the public is helping to uh, prevent the future colonies in that community. But I ultimately think that the best possible plan for an approach to spay neuter is to do both. Uh, because I think we have to treat the whole cat. We have to treat the animals that might be free roaming in people's homes, uh, might be abandoned at a later point uh, in some situations, or might be breeding in some other ways, along with the feral cat colonies that we're seeing. And I think overall, if I had $100, I would probably spend 50 on low-cost spay-neuter for the public and 50 on TNR, because it would solve probably a lot of the reasons why we had an adoption program to begin with. So that would be my my gut response to that. Carmen? All right. When you first asked that question, my initial thought was I'd do 50-50 between TNR and spay-neuter and I would, because I think adoption is kind of starting to fade away and it's not becoming that primary program. But thinking about it, I, I would put some of the funds, a smaller portion of it, into the adoption portion of it because I don't think we can look at anything from just one lens. And the reality is, you know, with TNR, some of those cats actually might not need to be released so uh, the adoption program, I think, you know, looking at the TNR component, that some of those cats actually, because it's such a mix now of, you know, are they truly uh, non-social, are they social, that uh, often those cats you come across actually might be able to be transitioned to a home. So I think you want to keep some resources toward that, but I probably would put, you know, maybe 20 into the adoption and then split the rest equally between the other two. You- so here's actually, sorry to jump in, yeah, but I yeah. think this is actually kind of an area that I think is is a good debate. And I'm not sure Carmen and I disagree on this one, but I think it's a good jumping off point. Uh, Carmen, well, I'll ask you a question, Carmen, is what is your feeling on the idea of moving away from TNR and, you know, or however you want to describe it, but basically identifying cats that are free roaming, spaying and neutering and returning them to the same location, or if you're finding friendly ones in that group, retaining those for adoption? Do you feel like there's a controversy there by any chance? Yeah, I think there probably is controversy because, one, do we truly know that they're free roaming or someone's outdoor cat? And I think that's one of the things we're struggling with now and actually are kind of changing some programming here. Because we know a number of the cats that people bring to us that they found in the neighborhood likely lived with someone. And the reality is, is when they do kind of come back into our adoption program, the chances of them ever reuniting with that home are, are probably less than 1%. I don't know. That's a really interesting question, and I'm not sure what the right answer is, which is, quite frankly, often the work we do, there's never one right or wrong answer. It's a giant area of gray in decision-making. But, I, you know, I do wonder if that's the right move, is just taking cats from where they are. I don't, I don't know that that is always the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I worry about it a lot because I do think if I were going to say a change that I've seen happen over time is that um, when there was shelters that were filled with cats and and struggling to find homes with cats, people were pretty on point with returning those animals to the community. And it was never really a question that came up that if you trapped a cat, regardless of whether it's friendly or seemingly feral, those animals would just get spayed, neutered, ear tipped and vaccinated and then returned to the community they came of. And, and no one really thought twice about it. 
And now I think we're seeing a lot of people being conflicted in that we're seeing a lot of not only trapping in, and then putting into shelters, but those animals uh, being trapped that might be friendly and then being transferred to a shelter that's not anywhere near where the animal is located, which I think gives people almost zero chance of finding their animal if it was a cat that was just indoor outdoor cat that uh, someone cared about, loved, maybe didn't spay or neuter, but uh, but ultimately might be looking for their cat and that cat's been relocated to a totally different area uh, for adoption. Uh, and I think that's a, a challenge that we're going to have to have as an animal welfare community is do we stay strong with leaving the cats where they are and providing the spay neuter and vaccinations or or is it our role to try to make a judgment call about rehoming those animals. And I I think that that's kind of a dangerous crossroads for us to have to um, debate about. So I'm going to jump in and just share some of the historical sort of data that I know, which is like in Newburyport, when we first started out with those 300 cats on the waterfront, I would say we initially pulled off in the first year or two about 60% of the population between being friendly adults and kittens, those cats were determined. And it was a very targeted area. So it's one of those conversations where the more targeted your area, the better you know the community, the better you know you've talked to the neighbors. So you know, oh, well, you know, Sylvester over there, you know, Sally Sue feeds Sylvester. So the more that you have of the community involvement, the better you can determine whether or not that cat is at risk or not at risk. And that's information that then can be passed along. The other thing too is if there's a cat that's out there that, you know, if our low-cost spay-neuter programs take a deep dive and we really have a lot of, you know, cats that are are indoor-outdoor but are already spayed and neutered, if we bring that cat in and it's already been spayed or neutered, then we realize that there is an advocate for that cat out there or there was an advocate for that cat at some point in time. And that, so maybe it behooves us to return that cat back to the community. But if there's a cat that hasn't, been spayed or neutered or or microchipped even. I mean, we're now doing the, the clinics with microchipping to even better identify, um, you know, is there a way for us to keep peeling back those layers of the onion to better know the cats in our community? I, I certainly know in Newburyport, we we knew the out, in, a lot of the indoor-outdoor cats that came into us as frequent flyers, and we knew who owned those cats, and, you know, we microchipped them and put them back, and so we would always know what to do with those cats, but that's a really targeted project. And can we ever hope to get that targeted with all of our communities? Yeah. And I think, I think if there's caretakers that really know their population really well and know the animals intimately, I think that's great. I, I think I would also say that I'm observing some situations in which caretakers might be making presumptions based mm-hmm. on tiny pieces of information. So I think that there is sometimes in animal welfare, our, our tendency is to look towards the most negative potential and, and the bleakest possibility from, from humans. So I certainly have come up across cases pretty frequently in which a caretaker has seen a new animal in the feeding station that they're at and then make the general presumption that after they've seen that animal two or three times that the animal has been abandoned and is now part of their colony. But I think we lose sight of the fact that we're putting you know, basically a buffet out for animals to come and feed from and that coming to take a free meal from us doesn't necessarily indicate abandonment, even if they come for a free meal every single day. We certainly know that cats are creatures or habits and they will continue to go back to the same location if they believe uh, resources there. So I think we just have to really always critically think about what it is we are presuming and what are the things that we really do know and maybe try to take steps to to see if we can get more information, use that cat to help us with that process. Like if it's a friendly cat that shows up in a colony that I'm feeding, 
is it best just to sort of presume that the animal is a um, abandoned or could we put a paper collar on it and ask the person to call us if the animal returns or do something else that might help us get a better or look at the overall physical condition of the cat to determine whether this cat is more likely indoor or totally outdoor cat. So I think for me, it's just a good conversation to keep happening, keep having, because I think I'm also really sensitive to that. I'm not sure it's always best for an animal to go into a shelter, even if there's space, that uh, rehoming isn't necessarily the best process for every animal if they've been successful in the home that they're already in. I would rather them be there than try to find them a new home that they may or may not do well in. Well, I think ultimately, Mike, that's kind of the essence of where we're going with the future of animal welfare is that our rules... I believe are going to morph more and more into becoming organizations that help support the bond between people and animals where they are versus that us taking them from whatever situation, whether that is from the field, from a home, whatever, wherever that may be, and then rehoming them completely. I think our, our role is shifting to putting the resources out into the communities and keeping that bond together versus finding someone else. Yeah, I think that that definitely makes sense and spreading that net even farther and the communications into the community. Today's episode is sponsored by Space Kitty Express, your one-stop shop for exotic cat drugs. Everyone's heard of catnip, but what about valerian root, tatarian honeysuckle, or silver vine? Space Kitty Express specializes in offering these hard-to-find catnip alternatives, both in their herbal form and stuffed into a variety of reusable toys. Their herbs are 100% pure, not like those quote-unquote catnip blends you might find in a pet store. Their tartarian honeysuckle wood is cut fresh and kept frozen to lock in its citrusy scent. Their silver vine exudes a mintiness that tingles the nostrils. Their organic valerian root is so musky that they've had to blend it with organic lemongrass so that human noses can tolerate it. Cats can definitely tell the difference between these quality herbs and that stale catnip from the big box store. Visit SpaceKittyExpress.com and watch videos from satisfied feline customers. Use coupon code COMMUNITYCATS, all one word, at checkout to receive 10% off your purchase. That's SpaceKittyExpress.com with coupon code COMMUNITYCATS. Doesn't your cat deserve the best? Spoil them today at SpaceKittyExpress.com. Did you miss the 2018 online cat conference that we held in January? Or would you like to share some of the conference webinars with friends? You can now purchase the presentations and share them with colleagues and friends. Just visit our recordings page, which is under the resources tab, to access webinars from some of the leading personalities in feline welfare today. They're sure to give you and your cat-loving friends great ideas on ways to help even more cats. Check it out at www.communitycatspodcast.com. I just want to shift a little bit and ask you guys, I get this question a lot from folks, you know, they're, they're working for an organization or they're working in a community, they're trying to help community cats, but they feel like they're just hitting the brick wall all the time or they're trying to create change, they're trying to advocate for change. Both of you have worked with different organizations and certainly have advocated for quite a bit of change over the the last several years. So, you know, what tips would you give somebody who feels like they're in a community that is just totally resistant to change? So I would, the first thing that I try to do with myself and I, I recommend to people that are trying to create change is first look at yourself first. How is your approach? How are you engaging people in conversation? What are you doing? Like, what are the things you can control? And that's how you present yourself, how you represent yourself, how you, the words you say. So first, always start with yourself because 
a good idea, no matter how good the idea is, if you bat people, you know, if you bash people over the head with it or engage them in a way that shuts them down right away with kind of negative conversation to start, it's uh, it's not going to go anywhere. So you always have to start with that. Then really, I think you have to look at what are you trying to succeed and look at the big picture. But then from that, take step back to take a few steps back and say like, okay, what is step one in this process to get there? I think what I find people get frustrated with is they see something that they feel needs to be changed within a program or a system, and they just want to get to the results right away. Like, you know, if we did X, we would save this many more animals rather than say like, okay, but to be able to get there, what, what are the programs, uh, what resources we do we need? How do we do it? So really try to tackle it, like divide it because I, mean, I think the problems we deal with in animal welfare are just so overwhelming, so overwhelming that you could just shut down and say like, this isn't even worth trying. We're never going to defeat it. So you have to really, you have to kind of divide it into chewable bites and, and try to get those little successes with the long-term goal in mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And I think when we have had situations, when I've talked to people individually about that feeling of resistance and frustration and that no one wants to help the animals or doing those types of things. I, when we really do sit down and talk about what their, what the approach is and what the goals are, I do find that, you know, one of the commonalities is that the approach may not be either able to be easily understood by who they're explaining it to and might need to be more simplified in the approach or that the approach is really strongly emotional or kind of coming at it from a more combative standpoint that isn't likely to get people to align with us. So I think sometimes in animal welfare, we tend to lose our cool pretty easily and we tend to project ourselves in a way that that might not make us look like sane and intelligent approach uh, people. And we might be coming across as more fanatical. And I think that people aren't don't really align with that. So I think starting with a conversation about what the person's concern is about the animals and what we're trying to get to and see what common grounds we can find. I really do think that when we start talking to people in our community about the needs of animals and the and trying to find solutions, most people want to help animals. Most people don't want to um, do things that will harm animals. I think it's just a matter of adjusting our approach to get the success that we want and trying to hit, I think Carmen said, is the more achievable goals and trying to find commonalities rather than trying to get everything all at once. So in the statement about commonalities, I'm going to actually pull out a bit of a difference between the two of you, and we'll see see what the conversation... It may not be different, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, so Dakin does transport cats in from out of state. In general, MSPCA does not. I know that there are some special cases where the MSPCA has. So Carmen, you want to Tell us a little bit about what the transport program is for cats, and then maybe Mike, tell us a little bit about what MSPCA's thoughts are. Sure. So, yeah, you know, cats are certainly a newer part of our transport program, um, and it's still a pretty small percentage of the animals we take in each year. But I think one of the challenges that, and I think this is uh, an area that people can differ on, but one of the things that I'm struggling with now is that we have so many people that really want to adopt. They want to adopt a, a dog or a cat from a humane society or from a rescue, and it's becoming harder and harder for them to find animals. So the difficult part, the, the part that I'm challenged with is what do we tell people? Like, where do we tell them to go? So our shelters don't have cats available for adoption. Where are we sending them? So we have the capacity. We have the room. There are areas we feel we can help. So that's Let's try that. And we try to be pretty strategic and targeted and not just take, 
animals from any location. We try to build a, a responsible relationship. We just started a partnership with a shelter in Virginia that they have an amazing program. So their capacity is such that they have a vast network of foster homes. They have a kitten ICU. So they're able to help groups around them that aren't able to take underage kittens that you know, need foster care and aren't ready to be adoption age. So what they found, though, is they were having difficulty at adoption age. They couldn't move the animals through spay, neuter, and adoption fast enough. So they were bottlenecking at adoption age, and it limited their ability to take in other cats from surrounding shelters that were having to make euthanasia decisions for those underage kittens. We certainly do not have a problem with adoption age. We, you know, just this past weekend, I think, had 25 kittens on the adoption floor and 25 kittens adopted. So it, it seemed like a really good and smart partnership to do that. And, I, you know, I do think part of our role is helping people find animals. I do think that is a piece. I think it's a really good feeling. I do think it's going to become less of what we do. But since we have the capacity to do it and we have a facility that's able to welcome adopters and have them come in, we decided to do that. And to give you an idea of numbers, in uh, 2017, so if we look at the calendar year, local kittens, we took in 1,152 kittens just from our local community, and we transported in 154 kittens. So it's a still pretty small percentage of what's coming from us. And we would not, if we weren't able to absorb local kittens, uh, we would not be you know, even talking about taking them from other places. Yeah, and I think from the MSPCA standpoint, and I know that I can be at times, you know, far more aggressive about this statement, but I think I've adjusted that over the years. I think there's there's a couple of layers that I always like to point out to people. For the MSPCA, first and foremost, the starting point for us to be able to consider importation is the ability for us to comply with the uh, Massachusetts regulations for import. And out of our three locations, our Angel, including our Angel Animal Medical Center in Boston, but also our Boston Adoption Center, our Cape Cod Adoption Center, and our Methuen location, we only have four current spaces that have been approved by the state for, for quarantine. So, And those are actually dog runs. So, uh, And one small, tiny room that wasn't actually designed as an animal space. So our capacity to be able to take in animals from importation is very low. So we would actually do, you know, really we'd be talking about if we were to group cats, for instance, like we did when we took animals from Puerto Rico, we're probably talking about 20 animals at a time unless it's more of an emergent situation and we were to try to go a little bit a little bit larger uh, numbers in those group spaces. So it's not really likely that we're going to be able to do that regularly enough to have a big impact either on our adoption program or on the location that we're taking the animals from with a fairly heavy cost associated with it. For us to really consider doing importation on any achievable level, we would have to talk about a major investment in infrastructure of our buildings to be able to adjust to the quarantine regulations that are there. So when we talked about whether it's better to invest in that to try to do the approach to adoption or whether it's better for us to use those resources for other reasons, I think it came, you know, what became apparent to me is that many organizations are importing in Massachusetts and New England, but not necessarily a lot of organizations are doing community outreach and direct community outreach. So it felt like to me that Best Impact might be able to help the animals that are in our community that that need access to resources to be successful. So we've chosen that pathway. I would also say that one of the things that I would be motivated to get involved with when it comes to, to importation was if that we if we had a little bit more strategy behind our importation programs, and we have talked about this at New England Fed meetings and with groups that 
we we have seen amazingly amazingly great success with targeted spay neuter. I think most people in animal welfare can recognize that that has been a major change in our approach that has had success. And I would love to see us consider doing that as a region for coordinated importation to try to help a specific region. So, for example, could Massachusetts align our resources for importation to be able to help another state, let's just say Georgia, for the sake of conversation, and we were to all align on helping Georgia get to a more stable point through importing animals for helping with overflow, and for those organizations that can't help with importation, that perhaps we would be able to provide other resources like spay-neuter mentorship or things on those lines to try to help that community get to where we are in the pathway of animal welfare and the timeline of animal welfare. So I would really love to see us move from a situation where it looks like a Southwest Airlines map of just, you know, all these animals coming from every different state into our state and kind of have this random approach to a little bit more targeted so that maybe we could have a greater effect. And if we started getting Georgia healthy, then maybe we help Mississippi or wherever the problems might be and that we can have a big effect as opposed to um, perhaps a smaller effect. I'm with you on that one, Mike. Great. Can I get one from Carmen, too? And we're all, and then we get three. Yeah, that's right. I'm with you on that, too. <laughs> For my last question, before we have to have to close out here, I'm going to ask you both to just sort of looking forward with regards to community cats. And, and can you, could you identify sort of what you think might be your, your greatest challenge going forward? Immediate or like the next like five years. Or the so. next three to five years. Like, what do you think life will be like for community cats three to five years down the down the road? Do you think you're not going to have any cats in the shelter? Or are we always going to be dealing with, you know, the old, strange, odd, and dysfunctional? I always refer to them, but I always say, too, <laughs> that people are old, strange, odd, and dysfunctional, too, so we all match up perfectly. But that's, that's tending to be what we're getting in our shelters. And are we going to be continued to be faced with that challenge down down the road? And then for our community cats, I mean, what what do you see happening there sort of in in Massachusetts? What's the momentum forward? Hopefully our humane alliance clinics or and the clinics that we have, are they gonna be able to to continue to sustain themselves? Are we gonna see some shelters go out of business? Uh, you know, what do you see going forward for us in New England? Well, I do think that. Uh, it will always be a place for shelters or rescues. The reality is, is we're here to provide a service and, and, you know, sometimes the bond does break between a human and an animal and the, you know, most appropriate choice in that case is for them to have the animal come to a shelter to be rehomed. I do believe, though, we are going to have fewer and fewer animals that, quote-unquote, work in every home. You know, I think it's not going to be the place to get a friendly social, there'll be some of them, but the friendly social pet that um, can work in most homes, I, I do think we'll see, because it, quite frankly, as we have fewer in the shelters, it's easier for people on their own to find placement for animals that are easier to place. So I do think we will be organizations that are faced with having uh, challenging animals and being able to have programs and services that are able to meet the needs of those most challenging animals in our care. For community cats, you know, I, I don't know. I think that's a, it's, for me, it's still a big X factor of how I would like to see, you know, region by region, again, have a more strategic approach. I think more groups are going to need to merge and be together and work together on these problems to solve them. Because I do think there is still a level of just kind of a scattered approach where we take, you know, the, 
I haven't seen a, a really good full scale. Certainly, uh, I don't even know that it's countywide, but statewide at all. That uh, everyone's kind of approaching it together, focusing on an area makes sustainable change. So, I think until we are able to form some coalitions, work together as groups, we, we probably won't have this significant change in the community cat region within the next five years or so. I think because I do think it's you know when you have all these individuals working, it makes it incredibly hard to coordinate and and you know focus efforts. I think ultimately we are moving into a phase in which we are going from an overpopulation state to a point of having a stable population. So I would assume that for both community cats and for animal shelters, we are going to be faced with reinventing ourselves overall. So do we? need to keep doing exactly the, the things that we've always been doing. I mean, I think the reality is when we look back in time, the time in which animal shelters for, you know, had, was there and necessary for some period of time. But I think we've always had the mantra that we are the one business that wants to put ourselves out of business. And I think as we all are approaching that reality, we are all a little scared because we're not sure what to do next. So I think it's important that I think what you're going to see over the next three to five years is that everybody is going to start to have that realization. I think I, it was far more prevalent this year at New England Federation of Humane Societies Conference than it was any other year that we've talked about this subject. So I think it's on people's minds. And I think we're going to start to see a point in which we start to become more innovative and we start to become more introspective about what is our role within our communities and what is our roles with helping animals. And I think that that's going to mean that people are going to make significant or minor changes to adjust to what our reality is now. So like Carmen said, shelters may or may not necessarily need to exist in the same way that they did before. There will always be animals that need to be rehomed and always animals that were at risk. So in some capacity, we will always operate that way. But the adoptions may shift from inside an adoption center to inside our community. Um, and I think with community cats, I think one of the big shifts is going to probably end up being is that we have been so heavily focused on the animals only and not the people attached to them. So when we're talking about feral cat colonies, we're not necessarily we're not necessarily including the people in that process. So some groups are going to need to, I think, start to look at community cats differently and start thinking about how do we make communication and partnerships with people in that community to take over the care, to identify and help identify whether those animals are owned or not, and do it through the people as opposed to doing it through the animal need. And we may find that what we presume to be true in the past may have changed. And I think we only can do that the more we actually meet people in the community and address the needs through the eyes of the people that live there. So I think that's the essence of the Pets for Life program and other types of programs, but it can be invented in different ways depending on what the origin of our organization started for. So I think it's going to be a period of incredible change, and I think we should all be pretty excited that we're in a good place for animals, um, and now it's time for us to think about how do we preserve the human-animal bond like we've talked about, how do we help people pe uh, keep animals in places where they are loved and cared for, and how do we help that relationship be fostered, not severed. And so I think it's going to be a pretty exciting time for all of us. Yeah, that's excellent. That's that's really true. I mean, one of the parallels or conversation pieces that I've had with folks is talking about 
orphanages and that they don't exist anymore. So it's now a foster care system. And so, you know, that might be the dynamic of, of change a bit is that, as you say, the programs are more in the community and kept locally. So, you know, kids aren't bouncing from different schools to schools and, and that kind of thing. Well, and we're keeping our cats, you know, in our community too. And say there is a cat that needs to be rehomed. It's not rehomed from, you know, Springfield to Boston. It's rehomed within Springfield, within the community, maybe not having involvement in the shelter, but yet the community is taking care of that cat. So it's it's a really nice picture, I think, um, think going forward. If folks are interested in finding out more about your organizations, Carmen, uh, what's your website and how would they check you out? It's DakinHumane.org, so D-A-K-I-N, Humane. I'm assuming everyone listening to this podcast knows how to spell humane.org. <laughs> <laughs> and they can find there. And actually on the website, you could get to my email as well, which is just cdicenzo, uh, C-D-I-C-E-N-S-O. And that's at dakinhumane.org. And uh, Mike, what's what's your uh, website? Ours is mspca.org. And I assume everyone knows how to spell mspca because it's just letters. <laughs> and people can certainly reach out to me directly at mkiley, which is K-E-I-L-E-Y, at mspca.org. Now, is the Carmen and Mike show scheduled to play anywhere going forward, or did you guys just finish your conference season? We just did. We don't have any uh, dates booked just yet, but we do expect to hear from our agent soon to see what is coming. <laughs> yep, and we can be booked for a fee for any uh, any individual bookings that anybody wants as well. We're happy to do that. So. We will work for beer. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what we meant by payment. Yep. So if there are folks organizing conferences, there are quite a few regional conferences out there. And I know you guys travel a lot and I know it's tough and everything, but it's it's wonderful to hear, you know, your thoughts on how things are changing going forward and, um, you know, and just sort of what's happened to us over the years. And, and I really do think that there's a lot of positive energy all across the country. Before we finally close out, anything else, uh, Carmen, would you like to share with our listeners? No, just I, you know, I just kind of mirror something that Mike said earlier is that it is, you know, it's an exciting and a scary time in animal welfare because we're really not sure of our future. And I, and I think we're going to help more and more animals as we start to reach into the community and really have a partnership. And, you know, if I were to have the perfect future for animal welfare, I would blur the lines between animal welfare and human welfare and look at them together because people help animals and animals help people and we should help both together. Mike, any last thoughts? You get to close out the show. Oh, man, so much pressure. Uh, well, no, I think, I think uh, one of the other things that Carmen and I talk a lot about is really just looking at ways in which we can all work with each other. I think we have spent an enormous amount of wasted energy and time trying to separate within animal welfare, welfare and starting with labeling our organizations with terms like no-kill or even, so like I said earlier, open admission or managed admission. And I think we really need to start thinking about how do we deliver messages together and how do we really move to a, a place in which we are really aligning with each other and not trying to compete with each other. Because I think one of the things that's always been frustrating for me in animal welfare is that we have allowed ourselves to be weak because we separate ourselves. And if we can join together and find our commonalities between our organizations, we will be even stronger. And I think it's in time for us to pull together and really work towards how we might be able to help the largest number of people and animals. So I think it's an exciting time. And like and Carmen said, it is scary at the same time, but it's time for us to all work together. 
Well, Mike and Carmen, I want to thank you so much to both of you for agreeing to be a guest on my show. And we'll have to uh, do the, the Carmen and Mike show uh, again. Anytime okay, you need us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 